I want you to take a Bible from the book rack in front of you, or if you have your own Bible, turn to Psalm 103. It's page 595 in the Bible there in the book rack in front of you. Share it with the person near you. We're going to read in unison the first five verses of the 103rd Psalm. You have it? Let's read together. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Isn't that marvelous? Let's join hands and hearts together, place the Bible back in the book rack, and take the hand of the person on either side of you, and let's bow our heads and close our eyes and pray together. Lord, for these wonderful words of promise and potential for each of us, we're so grateful that you forget, do not forget us and bless us with countless benefits. We thank you for forgiving us of our sins, healing our loss of ease, redeeming us from the pit, fulfilling us with satisfying desires and good things so that our lives may be renewed like the eagle's. Renew us today. Refresh us with your presence. Heal broken hearts. Lift sagging spirits. Restore relationships. And in and through all that is said and done today, honor your Son, our Savior. We gladly confess that without him we can do nothing. We may preach and sing and speak, but without his presence, our words will be nothing but sounding brass and clanging cymbal. We are totally dependent upon the presence of your spirit to vivify your word in our, in our lives and in our living. And so bless this service and each person, every single individual. We pray in Jesus' loving name, amen. I want to introduce you to my friend. This is uh, Rosie, isn't it? This is Rosie. Uh, she got her name. Martha bought this for our fall festival celebration we had at our school, the Buckner Fanning Christian School out at Mission Springs. Martha bought this for that celebration. But uh, she looks exactly like a girl I dated in high school. <laughs> Bob Bushman and I were in high school together. You remember her, Bob? I think you. I saw you dancing with her one time. Uh, well, this morning I'm going to speak on scarecrows. Now, I've uh, spoken on it before, but I want to use the same title and the same introduction, but a different message. Uh, Dr. Clyde Childers, a number of years ago, gave me a set of books, a very cherished set of books by Frank Borum, an Australian Christian, uh, wrote essays and told stories. It's just, uh, it's out of print now, I'm sure, and I'm grateful uh, to Clyde for the gift. And uh, the story about the scarecrows comes from Frank Borum. He says, uh, this scarecrow was placed in the middle of this field of very ripe berries. 
And there were some of the uh, crows that would just perch up on the top of the scarecrow and some on the shoulder. And then they would just kind of fall down into that field of ripe berries and just eat until they were so full they could hardly fly back up to get up here again. But there were some crows that were perched around on the telephone lines and on the barbed wire fence that were just sitting there watching. And some of the crows that were just feeding themselves on delightful, delectable berries uh, would go over there and say, come on over, look, there's more than enough for all of us. Come on over. And they'd say, oh, man, look at that, that thing over there. You, you, mean, you mean that scarecrow? Yeah, you, you're frightened of that thing? Come on over, let me show you. It's nothing. It's just a harmless effigy. It's just, it's just a bunch of straw with a coat on. No, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. And he went on to say that those crows could sit right there on that fence line or on those telephone wires and literally starve to death when there is a feast right there before them, but they let this scarecrow keep them from enjoying the blessings that could rightfully be theirs. In reality, a scarecrow is an invitation to a party, to a feast. You don't put a scarecrow in a parking lot. You don't put it in a, in a dead field. You put it there to try to protect that crop. But if a crow's smart at all, he'll get on the top of the steeple of this church and look for a scarecrow because it's an invitation to a wonderful meal. Fear, fear, fear. God has come to deliver us from our fears. Some, one of the major news magazines some time ago said that one of the dominant emotions in America today is fear. I guess it's always been one of the dominant emotions. Fear generally comes from two basic causes. It manifests itself in another, in a variety of ways. Uh, Fear of that which we do not understand. We're afraid of anything we do not understand. And we are afraid of what we cannot control. And there's a lot we don't understand. And there is a lot we cannot control. We cannot control what's going to happen to us in the next minute, the next day, the next week. And so we develop some anxiousness or anxiety or some fear. I know that feeling. Sometimes people think that preachers don't have doubts or don't have fears or don't have concerns. Well, that's not so. I can remember back in the early 50s, I was holding a three-week, 15-day revival meeting in the First Baptist Church of El Paso. And we had services every morning and every night and had a wonderful revival back in the days when we used to have long revivals. And uh, I had to get up, catch a plane at 4.30 to fly home to Dallas. And I went back to the hotel after the last service on Sunday night and for some reason, I was just, I was just afraid. I, I don't know where it came from. It just sort of erupted uh, out of the subterranean consciousness of my own mind and just poured a kind of hot lava of fear all over me. And I couldn't sleep. I didn't sleep all night. I finally got dressed and went on out to the airport to catch that 4.30 plane, with, but I hadn't gone to sleep. But i tell you what I did do. I memorized the 91st Psalm, 
It, along with the 23rd Psalm and the 139th Psalm, are my three favorite Psalms. There are many, many others that are marvelous, but these three have meant something special in my life. And the 91st Psalm says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Almighty will rest. He who, he who dwells in the shelter of the Almighty will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress in whom I, am tr- in whom I can trust. Surely He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will trust. He will deliver you from the trap. That's what that fowler means. That means it's a trapper. He lays a trap, the snare of the fowler. He will keep fear from grabbing you by the feet and keep you from moving forward and enjoying the freedom that Christ has given to us. Our God is able to deliver us. Go on and read the psalm. You get to the last couple of three verses, the 14th psalm of the 14th verse of the 91st psalm. Because he loves me, says the Lord. Listen to this. He's saying it to you as just as he was saying it to the psalmist and said it to me those long hours in El Paso. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will deliver him. I will protect him. For he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Did you hear it three times in that one psalm? God says, I will deliver you. I will deliver you. I will deliver you from the scarecrows in your life. I will deliver you from the fears that grip you. I will deliver you from those restless nights when you cannot sleep. I will deliver you. How does he do it? He does it because Jesus has been here and been through all of that with us and for us. And in his triumphal statement in the first chapter of the book of the Revelation, He says in the 17th and 18th verses, listen to this, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and I am alive forever and I have in my hand the keys of death and of hell. Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am before you and after you. I am the living one. I am present now in your life. I was dead. I did taste death for every man. I was dead, but I am alive forevermore. And I hold in my hands the keys to life, to death, to eternity. Keys. Keys mean access. Keys mean control. Keys mean authority. I don't have the keys to life, death, and eternity. No preacher does, no pastor does, no priest does, the Pope doesn't, Billy Graham doesn't, 
Only the Lord has the keys and they can't be bought or borrowed. You can't earn them, you can't bribe him. He has the keys to open and to close. And he has come to open the door of salvation to all who will believe. I am the first and the last. I am alive. I am present with you. And I will be with you throughout eternity because I have the keys of death and of hell in my hands. One of the fears, fear of life, fear of death, fear of eternity, that's what I want to talk about because all of these, I think, are included in what Jesus said. Do not be afraid. I am the living one. He's alive right now. And he's alive through his spirit to work in this place, in your heart and in your life and in mine. That we, we don't need to be afraid of life. Life has a lot of uncertainty about it, doesn't it? There's about a lot about life that's unpredictable. A lot about life and things in life that can frighten us. We can be, we can be afraid of failure. We can be afraid that we're not going to live up to our highest expectations and to fulfill our dreams. I grew up in a family and in a day when we were challenged to do our best. Just do your best. I mean, if you do your best and you make an A, that's wonderful. If you do your best and make a C, that's wonderful. If you do your best and make a D, that's wonderful. If you do your best, the best you can do, don't want to fail. Talked about failure last week. Failure is neither fatal nor final. I want to add a quick PS to that. There are some failures that are fatal and they are final. If you start messing with drugs, let me tell you, you've made a mistake that's fatal and final. Fatal and final. Don't start. Don't experiment. It can be fatal to your life and final. Don't involve yourself in premarital sex. It can be fatal. Once married, don't be unfaithful. It can be fatal. It can be fatal to your family. It can be final. It can put a terrible burden upon the heart and life of your children. There's some mistakes that are fatal and final. But I'm talking primarily about the failure that we have to want to live up to the dreams that God has placed within us and the desires to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. God came to Moses and said, Moses, he'd been there 40 years in the wilderness. He was now 80 years old. God came to him and said, Moses, I want you to go in and deliver my people. And Moses started saying, I can't do that. I don't even know how to talk well. I can't do that. And God said, listen, I'm with you. You just go on. I will be with you. He went in there with insecurity. I can't do it on my own. I need help. We all need help. Moses died and Joshua became the leader. And God knew he would be afraid. Who wouldn't be afraid of following Moses who had been like a great Mount Everest in their lives for 40 years, led them through the wilderness 
And now here he's dead. They have to cross the Jordan. And God says to Joshua, now don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Neither be thou discouraged, for the Lord thy God is with you wherever you go. God will be with you. He'll help you fulfill what he wants you to do and what he wants you to be. Solomon, same thing. Read in 1 Kings, I think it's about the third chapter, when David died, David, who had been the king for all those years, David died and now Solomon was king. And Solomon said, I'm but a little child. I cannot handle this. I cannot do this. And God comes with his promise to Solomon. The apostle Paul, out preaching the gospel, proclaiming it throughout the Roman Empire, establishing churches, conducting evangelistic meetings, writing letters that became part of our Bible. And at one time, he cried out in Corinthians, he cried out in a letter to the church at Corinth, who is sufficient for these things? I can't do this. Every pastor, every preacher has that feeling. Who is sufficient to get up there on Sunday morning and say something? Can't do this. And then God came to him with that clarion call of reassurance when God came to him and said, listen, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. You don't have to depend upon yourself. Depend upon my grace and my promise. And he went on. Fear of failure. Fear of others. Fear of others. I saw this on the wall of a businessman friend years ago. I've never forgotten it. He said, I cannot give you a rule for success, but I can give you a rule for failure. Try to please everybody. You can't do it. As hard as you try, you just can't do it. It is impossible to please everybody. Now, we always had the feeling that, well, if they just really knew how wonderful I am, if they just really knew how I felt, they would like me. But uh, that's not going to happen. The Bible says the fear of man brings a snare. It means it trips you up. The fear of man brings a snare. It trips you, keeps you from being the person God wants you to be. The man of God declared, I will fear the face of no man. Remember, remember, you and I, in the final analysis, you and I live our lives before an audience of one person, and that's Almighty God. Every one of us live our lives before an audience of one. You say, well, a lot of other people are watching. That's right, but they won't count in eternity. They won't be there when you stand before the Lord to give an account of the deeds done in the flesh. In fact, Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. You think he didn't have people that didn't like him? There were some that didn't like him so much they tried to kill him and did. And he said, beware when all men speak well of you. I tell you, people in Christian work that I know, pastors, ministers, and church staff, and I know a lot of them in a lot of churches, I guarantee you one thing, that's one thing they don't have to worry about. Be aware that when all men speak well of you, well, you don't have to worry about that if you try to lead a church, I can guarantee you. And if someday when I die and I'm at this 
place to, for the funeral and somebody gets up here conducting my funeral and saying, oh, Buckner, thank God for him. He never upset anybody. I'm going to kick the lid off that coffin. <laughs> and I'm going to say, wait a minute. There were people that were angry with me because of the race issue and angry with me because of the ordination of women in the life of this church and for other things. No, sir, beware when all men speak well of you. Now, I don't think you ought to go out and try to make people angry. I don't think you ought to do that at all. But I think you need to be the Christian God wants you to be. And if that upsets some other people, that is their problem. That is their problem. And you cannot be responsible for their response or lack of it. Do the best you can and go on and leave your case in the hands of God because that's where it's going to finally be anyway, right? Don't be afraid of other people. Don't be afraid of success. Now, this may sound strange. Don't be afraid of success. I think some people fear success. I know a man in the Bible did. The man at the Pool of Bethesda, 38 years, lying there, you know. He had this... Uh, this idea, this had this pool there and the spring would spring up, but they thought it was an angel coming and stirring the waters and that whoever got in there first uh, would be healed. And Jesus came along and here's this fellow. He's been there 38 years, 38 years. Jesus comes along and he asks him what looks to be on the surface the most ridiculous question ever asked. Do you want to be well? Well, he didn't want to be well. He didn't have to work. He didn't have to take responsibility for anybody. He didn't have to care for anybody else. People bring him food. People take care of him. Well, he, he enjoyed that. Jesus said, get up. Take up your bed and walk. Get up. Get up. Get up. Don't be afraid of success. Some people are afraid of it. Yes, it will bring responsibility. Yes, it will bring some disappointments. But what are we here for? Are we here to be parasites on life? Are we here just to lounge around the pool? Or are we here to make a difference in the world? We're here to be difference makers. You know, I believe prosperity has ruined more people than, than failure. The peril of prosperity. It can do it. God knew about it. That's why he wrote in the 8th chapter of Deuteronomy. Let me read it to you. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for what he's given you. Remember to always give him thanks for it. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold increase and you, what you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. You may say to yourself, my power and my strength of my hands have produced this worth for, this worth for me, this wealth for me. Remember, it is the Lord who gives you the ability to produce wealth. It is God who's given you the ability to produce wealth. It's not the stock market. It is God who has blessed you. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods like money, or power, or fame, and worship them, I testify against you this day, you will surely be destroyed like the nations were destroyed before you. Go back and read it, Deuteronomy 8, 10 through 20. Success can ruin you. I agree with John Wesley. Make all you can, give all you can. Make all you can, save all you can, so you can give all you can. You know what money's supposed to be done? What you're supposed to do with money? It's supposed to be converted. Your money is supposed to be converted. It's to be converted into conversions in bringing people to Jesus Christ 
It's to be converted in feeding people in the name of Jesus and clothing people in the name of Jesus and healing people in the name of Jesus and housing people in the name of Jesus. And God will take money and he will transform it. He will convert it into things that will make a difference in the world for Jesus Christ. I, I, don't, I don't want to embarrass Martha, but I want to tell a story on her. I have her permission to do this. Um, Martha's been singing ever since she was about nine years. Sang her first solo in the First Baptist Church in Dallas when she was nine years old. Now, we've seen some of that here in the living Christmas tree and in the, in the choir concerts that we have with children. We have some marvelously talented children and young people in this church, as you know. And, uh, but it was rare. We didn't have youth choirs. Had one when I, we were growing up, and I was in it for a while, and then they asked me just to hum. And <laughs> so that's what I did. But Martha sang, and then she began to sing. And all, Remember, in, back in those days, we had departmental meetings and then break up and go to Sunday school? Well, you'd have a devotional, and you'd have an announcement time with the sick and accident reports and that kind of thing. And then somebody would sing, and then you would go to, to Sunday school class. Well, Martha sang in all those departments. She'd go around sometimes singing three or four on Sunday morning. And when she was 12 and 13, she was singing and leading and playing the piano at the West Dallas Mission. They'd meet over there on either Saturday or on Sunday afternoon, Sunday night. And uh, so Martha's been involved in singing for a long time. By the time she was about 12 or 13, she had begun to develop her repertoire of gospel songs, had memorized them and worked on them and practiced them. And she went one day with a group down to the jail, county jail in Dallas. They were going to have a jail service. And they had a group there to sing and had one of those little organs you used to pump with your feet. Some of you will remember those. And they were there and had three or four tiers of, of uh, cells there, one right above the other. Uh, and they could look out of the cell, but they, uh, they, they couldn't come out. They could look out and see and listen to what was being said and sung. And so Martha took one of her songs that she had sung in Sunday school and Sunday school classes, and she sang down there at the Dallas County Jail. Is the world a better place because of you? Do you stand among the faithful, brave, and true? Well, you look up at that crowd. Is the world a better place because of you? Well, you know, I don't doubt, but that God used that. Maybe some fellow up there said, you know, I haven't been worth a flip to God or anybody else. If I get out of this place, I'm going to change the direction of my life. I believe God can do anything. And I believe maybe he changed some of those prisoners' hearts. But you know what I want to do? The reason I tell you that story is because I want to bring it to us, to me and to you. We're not in prison. Oh, we may be in a prison, but we're not behind bars. You can be in prison. A prison of indifference. Is the world a better place because of you? Is the world a better place because of you? Are you and I making a difference in our world? God didn't call us here just to be passengers in the kingdom of God. He did not just call us to be parasites. He called us to be participants.
He called us to be a part of what's going on. Why did he leave us here? He left us here so life could be made different for other people. Is the world a better place? Because we're here. Fear of life. I need to move on. Fear of death. All of, all of literature is filled with anxiety and anxiousness about death. It is mysterious. It's one of those things that we don't understand. And one of those events that we cannot control. Now, I don't want to depress you. I just want to give you the facts and you know them. Although we don't like to hear it, all of us are going to die. Unless the Lord comes back first, we're all going to die. I'm not trying to lay a heavy trip on you. I'm just trying to get us to realize the facts of life. And one of the facts of life is that it ends as we know it. We die. The Bible says it. It is appointed unto man once to die. We're all going to die. You know, Tommy, I believe if we could just convince people that they were going to die, we could convince them to accept the Lord as Savior. There's just some feeling about some folks that they're just invincible and eternal. It's going to happen to everybody else but them. No, we're all going to die. Uh, in the Middle East, there's a saying, the black camel kneels at every gate. And the English poet said, with equal pace, impartial fate knocks at the palace and the cottage gate. Everywhere. You remember Hamlet, of course. You may have memorized his soliloquy in school. To be or not to be, that is the question. And then he muses about life and about sleep and about dreaming and then about death. And then he finally comes to say, and death, that undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear the ills we have then flee to others we know not of. That undiscovered country, death, from whose born no traveler returns. Hamlet, if you're here, Hamlet, I want to introduce you to Jesus. I want to introduce you to Jesus. Undiscovered country, not on your life. Jesus Christ willingly walked into the valley of death for every one of us. And when he walked into that cave, he began with his pierced hands to start tearing down the banners of sin's victory and of death's conquering. And he pushed the back out of it and revealed to us that beyond it is sunrise and resurrection and life. And just as David walked out of the Ela Valley holding in his hand the head of Goliath. Jesus walked out of his grave holding in his hand the Goliath of death and in his other hand the keys to death and to life. He conquered it undiscovered. No, he's been there from whose born no traveler returns. He has returned and he has come back and I am alive, he said, forevermore. Forevermore.
Final word, eternity. You know, uh, I know I'm going to go to heaven when I die, not because I'm good or a preacher or a Baptist or any of that. I want to go to heaven because Jesus said if I put my faith and trust in him, I would go there. And I'm going to put my faith and trust in him because I can't put it in anything else. Can't put it in myself or in you or the church or some priest or evangelist or anybody else. It's either Jesus or nothing. So I put my faith and trust in him. Now I'm, I'm going to heaven, but I'm not in, in a hurry. Heaven's my home, but I'm not homesick. You probably heard about the preacher who's preaching and he said, how many of you want to go to heaven? Raise your hand. And everybody raise their hand. Except one fellow sitting out there on the aisle. The pastor said, don't you want to go to heaven, sir? He said, oh yeah, sure I want to go to heaven. He said, why didn't you raise your hand? He said, well, I thought you were taking up a load right now. <laughs> well, we're not getting up a load right now. I want to go there. Well, let me tell you, I, I don't want to leave here. I do not want to leave here. I do not like separation. I just do not like being separated. I remember when Martha and I drove Mike up to Baylor, all excited. He's going up there as a freshman, all loaded up in the car. And we went up there and he checked into that dormitory, Pendleton Hall, I think it was. They'd rebuild it after he and Steve lived there for a while. But, uh, Martha and I came, got in the car and started back. And we didn't say anything for about 45 minutes or an hour. I mean, we were already past Belton. I didn't want to say, he was just going off to college. But I was going to miss him. And I didn't want to say anything because I was afraid Martha would see tears in my eyes. So I kept my colored glasses on. I don't like to be separated. Three years later, we did the same trip with Steve, and I thought, well, we, you know, we know how to do this now. Went up there, same thing. We didn't talk till we got to Belton or later. I don't like to be away. You know what? I'd like to live to see my children, Mike and Steve and Lisa and their wives and husband. I'd like to see all of them live to be 60 70, 80 years of age. Be here to enjoy them. Go out to eat with them. I'd like to see Avery and Megan and Julia, Michael Jr. I'd like to see them get married, have a family, have a business, a career, whatever God wants them to do. I'd be right there watching it all and being a part of it all. I want to do that. You know what? I believe I will do that. Well, I won't be here. But I'll be up in the balcony. Like the book of Hebrews said, we're encompassed about with a great cloud of witnesses. And my mother and father are up there. And our little baby that died at birth is there. Martha's mother's there. Our grandparents are there. Aunts and uncles are there. And they're all watching us, and so are yours. They're in the balcony. They're in the grandstand. We're still out here on the playing field. One of these days when we go up there, we're going to be spectators. I'm going to be pulling for them. I'm going to be urging them on. They say, go for it, go for it, go for it. And then someday, when the Lord returns, 
we're all going to be caught up together with him in the clouds to be with the Lord and with one another forever and ever and ever. It just won't be heaven if I'm not there with my family, my friends, my church family. It just won't be heaven. You know, the wings of a bird meant that it was made to fly. And the fins on a fish were made because it was made to swim. And God put eternity in our hearts because we're to spend eternity with him. It's built into us. As Pascal said, the existence of hunger presupposes the existence of bread. God would not create a hunger and then not fulfill it. And he creates within us a desire to be with him and with our loved ones forever and ever. And he will not thwart that God-given desire. He will fulfill it. I've told you the story. It's worth telling quickly again. My mother, wonderful, wonderful Christian woman. I remember we all lived together in one big house on Claremont Drive in Dallas during the Depression and seven of us living there. And um, I had a little dog. And I was the only, one, only grandchild in the group. My brother Bob came along a few years later, five and a half years later. I had a little dog that I named Powder Puff, and Powder Puff got run over. And it just broke my heart. And I went into my mother and I said, Mother, will Powder Puff be in heaven? Well, I believe God gives mothers a special insight. I know he does. Did mine. And she paused a moment and then she said, Bugner, whatever it takes to make you happy will be in heaven. okay by me that settled it for me I mean my mother should have written it in the bible somewhere that, that's a good verse of scripture whatever it takes to make you happy will be there and I tell you to make me supremely happy will be there to be with my family some of them already there some maybe to come and I'll not ever meet in this life but we'll meet from the balcony of heaven and be with throughout eternity. So, you know who has the keys? He has the key to life, the key to death, and the key to eternity. And I want to urge you today to put your faith in him. He'll open the door to you. He opens the door of access to his grace, which is sufficient for you. He'll open the door to heaven for you. He'll open the door to meaning for you. The door's open. He has the keys and he's invited you to come. Will you come? Will you come? Come trust him. Come put your faith in him. Trust him as your Lord. Acknowledge him as your Savior. Come as thousands have done across these years, down these aisles, to accept Christ. Or to come be a part of this church. To not be a spectator, but a participant. To be a part of it. To help us make a difference in the world. I'll be here to greet you. The chorale will sing. I don't want anybody to move. I'd like you to be still for just a few moments. It's early. It may be very late for some people. It may be very late for some people. We don't want to rush. 
This may be the last sermon somebody hears. Somebody may be hearing it for the first time. Someone else may be hearing it for the last time. So the door is open. Come on in.